Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to have you back and... And obviously, I'm conscious that this is a kind of, you've got a dual transition to make, coming back to the country after your holiday, and also blending back into civilian life following the overthrow of the Jeffocracy. I mean, that is obviously, you know, you've been, you've been abroad, there's been a coup in your absence. I mean... You must have thought about... I thought about claiming political asylum somewhere, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think you should be pleased that I sort of arranged safe passage for you to come back, you know, without any further questions asked. I saw your video last week promoting the episode where you seized the means of broadcast. Exactly. I I just think that this is, is just a blip. In the, uh, in the, the, the coming glory days of the Jeffocracy and, I just want you to know that you will be flung into political prison. I'm sure. Day one. No, no, I'm sure. I'm sure I will be. But, 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 you know, how do you feel about that? I mean, it is, does serve you right for having gone on holiday, really? Yeah, that's that's the moral of the story. I isn't mean, that it? is what all you know political yeah. leaders don't do when their grip on power is tenuous. But the reason I came back wasn't just to re-establish the Jeffocracy, yeah, but it was to to be that, here for the launch of, of Cheerful Book Club. Long in the gestation. Yeah, the first episode uh, hit, hit came sh- out last week. Yeah, and, uh, and Rana Faruha. That's right. She was great, and we're yeah. gearing up for episode two, which is going to be Alex Beard, Natural Born Learners, a brilliant book about education. It's a conversation with me, you, and Melissa Ben. I love Melissa Ben. Yes, she's we the do. greatest, isn't she? Um, and and it's it doesn't pop up in this feed. You'll need to go and subscribe to the Your cheerful book club feed. feed. Yeah. Just search for Cheerful Book Club wherever you get your podcasts, or if you go to our website, uh, you'll you'll find links there, or we'll we'll put a link into the description to this episode. So we're back, and what what are we getting into this week then? So this week we're talking about climate litigation, the use of legal cases to force governments to change their climate policies and win damages from fossil fuel companies responsible for the crisis. In December, the Dutch Supreme Court upheld a decision by the lower courts. The government of the Netherlands had to reduce carbon emissions by 25% by the end of 2020, compared to 1990 levels. This is the first time a court has ordered a national government to reduce carbon emissions by a set amount. And it's the latest in a wave of more than 1,300 climate cases that have been brought in 28 countries, including the UK. And we're going to be talking to Tessa Khan, who is on the legal team that brought the Dutch case. Now, she's an interesting character you've worked with before, right? Well, I met her at a dinner with Mary uh, Robinson, the former president of Ireland. And, you know, she's, she's, she works on climate litigation around the world. And we're also going to talk to Tim Crossland, who has brought two climate cases against the British government. And then we're going to Vermont. Well, not literally going to Vermont. Bernie land. Uh, Bernie land, feel the burn, where a number of cities, including New York, well, we're going to Vermont to talk about the United States, where a number of cities, including New York, San Francisco and Baltimore, are suing fossil fuel companies. And we're talking to law professor Pat Parento about what's going on there. 
And then you recorded a conversation with, with a cheerful person with for With Annette Schenker Osario, who produces a really great podcast called uh, Brave New Words, which is about successful progressive campaigns. And um, we're gonna ha- we had a fascinating conversation while you were away, and we're going to be hearing that. So, what's your reason to be cheerful? Jojo Rabbit, have you seen it? No. Have you, have you heard of it? Uh, no. Oh, it's. I think it's been nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It's oh, right. out of the pictures at the moment. Right. Uh, it's Taika Waititi, who people. I think he was sort of involved with the guys from Flight of the Concords very early on. Right. And he's gone on to become this big deal Hollywood director. Right. He made one of my favourite comedies, which is uh, uh, called What We Do in the Shadows, which has now been adapted to a TV show. But he's he's very much in demand in Hollywood, and he's made this film, and it's a comedy, but it's really heartwarming and beautiful, and it's set in. In sort of the dog days of the Second World War in Germany, and it's about a German boy who, because of you know his personal circumstances where he lives, is desperate to be in Hitler Youth. Wow! But then there's an inciting incident in the film, which means he can't, very early on, which means he he can't go to the Hitler Youth camp with all the other boys. So he spends time with his imaginary friend, which is Adolf Hitler. Now I know what you're thinking you're thinking this sounds a bit crass and tasteless, but it isn't. It's re- you know it's really been nominated for lots of awards. Yeah, it has. It's it's re- really done. It's a it's a comedy, but then the final third of the film is is really beautiful. Sounds great. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Uh, well, obviously, my primary reason to be cheerful is the fact that you're back. Thank you. It's good um, to be back. It's I mean, good I to think be we back. should take that as we shouldn't take it as red because you know we should emphasize that point. Yeah. I mean, because I was feeling a little insecure. What with the overthrow of the Jeffocracy and exactly, all that, the exactly. insurrection. No, it's genuinely good. The insurrection left me feeling a little. But then know, my unsteady. real reason to be cheerful to my self-esteem. Go on. Well, <laughs> is is so I. Th- I've watched the, only watched the first episode, but I kind of see what people see in succession. Right. This is not about the Labour leadership contest. This is about... <laughs> uh, it's based on Murdoch, isn't it? It's a Murdoch. I mean, Jesse Armstrong, who writes it, will say it's based on a variety of people, which I'm guessing yeah. is just a way of covering your back legally. But yeah, I mean, it, it really does seem like it's written about that particular family. Designated Survivor, which for a long time I was pushing, I've sort of... I haven't kind of got really to the end of Series 3. It's sort of... It's kind of lost its allure slightly for me. Um, so you've you, got you something you don't watch it anymore, do you? No, no. no. And I interviewed Kiefer Sutherland and I told told him you were a big fan of it. Yeah. He said who? Yeah. Uh, but um, you were an early adopter of Succession, weren't you? I was, yeah. Not only was I an early, early adopter, but when you get to the end of the f- first series, the last episode from the... F- fairly much the opening minutes of the episode i predicted to my wife exactly what would happen really yeah it was one of, it was the greatest victory of my life but does that mean is that a good thing or a bad thing that it was so predictable it's, no, no, it was, it's not predictable it's just i'm oh. brilliant i'm brilliant oh, at I these see. things it's a gift it's my singular gift it'll keep on giving reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd Let's meet our first guest. We have Tessa Khan, who is a member of the Agenda legal team and the co-director of the Climate Litigation Network, and Tim Crosland, who is barrister and director of Plan B. Uh, hello, both of you. Hey. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, I wanted to start, Tessa, by uh, asking you about your experience of being on the Agenda legal team for the, for the case versus the Netherlands. Can you tell us about that case for people who don't know about it and then, you know, what what transpired and what that decision from the Supreme Court means? 
Sure. So I might start with what the case means so as not to bury the lead. Um, so the reason that the case is so significant is because it's the first time in the world that a court has ordered a national government to reduce a country's greenhouse gas emissions by an absolute minimum amount. Um, and so the case started in 2013 when the Agenda Foundation, which is a Dutch sustainability NGO, together with about 900 Dutch citizens, brought this case against the government of the Netherlands, alleging that the emissions, greenhouse gas emissions trajectory of the Netherlands in 2020 was unlawful on the basis um, that it was incompatible with the human rights of Dutch citizens and a breach of the Dutch civil code. And they asked the court to order the government to reduce the Netherlands greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25% in 2020 compared to 1990 levels. Um, and in 2015, the District Court of The Hague agreed with us um, and made that order, which was the historic kind of watermark moment. Um, and then in 2018, after the government predictably appealed the 2015 decision, we won again, the government appealed yet again. Um, and in December last year, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands, which is the highest appellate court, affirmed the decision for the last you time. You keep winning. Yes. And we've, I mean, and that's it. There are no more avenues of appeal. So, you know, the case is protected. Does the um, government look yeah. like the bad guys when they, when they keep appealing this? Yeah. I mean, in our view, definitely they could just get on with implementing the reduction order of the court um, and not waste taxpayers' money. And the money. basis of the 25% was that is the thing that would be consistent with two degrees, limiting global warming to no more than two degrees. Exactly. And the Dutch government had signed up to that at Copenhagen? Yep. And oh, no, at Par well, at Paris, but it was this, right. the case started before Paris. Exactly. It started before Paris. So the two-degree target was embodied in a number of yeah. the UN climate decisions that the government had endorsed and signed up to. And the 25% reduction target also featured in a number of those decisions um, as being the very minimum amount that industrialised countries needed to reduce emissions by, by 2020. Uh, and is it something about the... Dutch uh, constitutional system or legal system that lent itself to this case? Not at all, actually. Right. And that's kind of why I, as an international yeah. human rights lawyer, got involved, because I think so many people saw the potential to replicate what had been done in the Netherlands in other legal systems, because, as I said, human rights, um, and in particular human rights that are protected under the European Convention on Human Rights, which have has been ratified or, you know, signed up to by 47 European states um, are applicable in all of those countries. And those are the rights that were relied on ultimately and were determinative. So, so what is the human rights argument then? So the argument is that climate change is a, a risk to the enjoyment of the right to life and the right to what is articulated in that instrument as private and family life, which includes your ability uh, to enjoy your housing and um, general well-being. So it's very um, much the ECHR, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, everything that we know about the current trajectory that we're on and the likely impacts of climate change at above two degrees um, means that those rights are incredibly vulnerable. And in a country like the Netherlands, which is super low-lying, um, and also in light of all of the other impacts of climate change in Western Europe recently, including, you know, mortality associated with heat waves, the likely other health impacts of climate change, the court agreed that those risks are concrete enough for the government to need to take action to reduce emissions. So far, so good. So we should bring in Tim, because Plan B was, has taken two cases, I think I'm right in saying, 
one around net zero and 2050 and Heathrow expansion. Tell us a bit about those cases and the, and the sort of thinking behind them. Sure. So um, Plan B was established just after the Paris Agreement in 2015. And governments, pretty much all the governments of the world, had agreed our collective future depends on limiting warming to well below two degrees and aiming for 1.5 degrees. But they didn't agree on any way to deliver that, and their actions take us way beyond that. So the concept was to hold them to account for those commitments through the courts. Now, in 2008, when the Climate Change Act came into force, Climate Change Minister was one, Ed Miliband, and he signed the 80% target by 2050 on the basis that would limit warming to two degrees. That, as we've just heard from Tessa, was the consensus at the time in 2008. Post-2015, everybody's agreed that's not good enough. That's catastrophic, potentially catastrophic. But we hold on to that same target. Yeah. In other words... Although the government has now legislated for... Since your case has now legislated for net zero. Precisely. So um, at the time we started the case, that hadn't happened. We, We begin the case in December 2017. And then by January 2018, the Committee on Climate Change say we now recommend a review. So we we don't succeed through the legal process, but there's another story. It's the parallel story of what happens outside the court when you focus attention. And what's on a the significance issue. of the fact that you didn't succeed in the legal case compared to the Dutch case? I mean, what what is there? Is it a less activist court? Is it a differently sort of? Uh, legal uh, different laws what, what what's the sort of what's the reason we as far as we can discern it so we tried the human rights arguments the court just wasn't interested in those arguments here what happened outside the court can you tell us a bit more about that the, the difference that made so we'd had a process of pre-action correspondence with both the government and the committee on climate change from april At no point during that correspondence did they say, well, we're thinking of reviewing the situation. When we start the legal action, suddenly people like Sir David King come out publicly and say, this is right. Ministers know what needs to be done and they're not doing it. It's not good enough. If I have to support legal action, I will. Suddenly the spotlight is on this discrepancy between the government's claims to leadership and what it's actually doing. And that pressure it appears to contribute, at least, to the committee saying, we recommend a review. And then quite quickly, actually, outside the court process, we get to roughly where we could possibly have hoped to have got through the legal action. I don't think the 2050 target is ideal at net zero at all. It's not good enough in accordance with the science. We were never going to get more through the court process. And what about the Heathrow case? So in Tell us about June 2018, case. Chris Grayling signs off approval for the third runway. Um, he does it. He's bound by law to, co- to consider government policy on climate change. But he considers only the 2008 target. He ignores the Paris Agreement completely. He comes out and says, I consider the Paris Agreement irrelevant because at the point of making this decision about Heathrow, it hasn't been implemented into domestic law. Therefore, completely irrelevant. I will use the two-degree target, not the 1.5-degree target. We say that is 
That's complete madness. How can you base your decision on a target that's been completely discredited by everybody, that's dangerous, that's leading us all to a place we don't want to go? So that has been the central argument that was rejected by the High Court, but then we got permission to appeal and had a full rehearing before the Court of Appeal in October, and we're still waiting to hear from the Court of Appeal. What, what, what do we learn from these, from these different sort of cases about the potential of taking governments to court, do you think? I mean, I think I'm right in saying that in the UK on air pollution, client Earth did succeed in forcing the government, I think three times, to forcing them back to improve the air pollution uh, strategy that they had. Can we, can we draw, Tessa, can we draw any sort of conclusions from what's happened so far in these two different jurisdictions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, as Tim said, you know, what happens outside the courtroom once these cases are initiated is just as important as what happens inside the courtroom. And in the Netherlands, you know, as I said, the government's been appealing the decision for the better part of five years now. But in the meantime, Dutch climate change policymaking has been completely transformed by the case and the popular mobilisation around the case, the way that the media covered it. Um, So, for example, since 2015, the Dutch parliament has agreed to phase out coal-fired power as soon as possible. It's passed a new Climate Change Act. It enacted an emissions reduction target for 2030 that at the time was one of the most progressive in Europe. You know, it's really changed the discourse and, you know, the kind of Overton window for policymaking in respect of climate change in the country. And that's because what these cases do, um, you know, they do two things. One of them is that they really put the facts of climate change on the table in a way that is beyond the argumentation in bad faith or the obfuscation of the facts that happens in the media or in parliament. In court, you just can't lie. You have to meet a certain standard of proof. Um, And the other thing that they do, these cases do, is they create really clear narratives of responsibility um, that are missing from the way that climate change is talked about. And principally what they do is they pin responsibility for this crisis on the two sets of actors who have known about it and have committed to do something about it, namely national governments and the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that's the other, I think, quite important set of cases in the context of climate change litigation. And t- tell us a bit about those and the, and, the, and the difference between those cases and the ones that are brought against governments. Sure. So um, in the last few years, we've seen a suite of cases uh, brought against fossil fuel companies, primarily those that were identified in a really groundbreaking study that was published about five years ago that identified that 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of greenhouse gas emissions that have been emitted since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Um, And I think a lot of people saw that study and thought to themselves, well, it is outrageous that these companies are not being made to bear the costs of climate change. Um, And so, you know, at least partly inspired by that study and often drawing directly on it, um, a number of, for example, US cities and counties and states have brought claims against big fossil fuel companies, asking them to pay the costs of the inevitable harm that those cities will incur as a result of climate change. Many of them are coastal cities and will have to, you know, adapt. So that's one, I think, example of the way those those cases look a bit different from the ones against governments, which are more seeking policy change. 
Um, and I think a particularly compelling example actually of those cases is a case that's been brought by a Peruvian farmer who lives in the Peruvian Andes. Um, and he's brought a case against RWE, which is one of Germany's main energy companies, on the basis that RWE is one of those companies that was identified in that study. And um, the his his village in the Peruvian Andes is basically threatened by melting glaciers and he's asking RWE to pay the costs of adapting to that glacial melt in direct proportion to its emissions since the start of the industrial revolution right. which you know which actually when you look at it when you add it up it's only about 20,000 euro but it's such an important principle that these companies need to be held responsible when these cases are brought who is bringing and where does the groundswell tend to come from So one of the interesting things that Urgenda has in common with Plan B is that a lot of the cases have been brought by relatively small groups that have established around this idea of bringing litigation rather than the the major NGOs that have relatively deep pockets and have been established for years. So that's one of the interesting things, the way people are mobilising around this concept. What about the argument that this stuff should be determined by politicians rather than lawyers? Well, I think all we're asking courts to do is to enforce or vindicate existing rights. Um, We're just asking them to apply those rights to a new set of facts. That's what makes this litigation seem creative or novel um, or political because climate change policy is or can be seen as being really political. But, you know, in the case against the Dutch government, we weren't asking the court to tell the Dutch government how to reduce emissions. We weren't saying it needs to shut down this coal-fired power plant, then reforest this part of the Netherlands and, you know, take the following measures. All we said was, look, if the Dutch government doesn't reduce its emissions by a certain percentage, then this is the kind of human rights harm that's going to flow from that. So all we're trying to do is establish a bare minimum of, of action that the government has to take. How it implements that action um, is really for policymakers to decide. And looking forward, how how much of a, to use a sort of cliche, game changer can climate litigation, do you think, be? I mean, as the science gets clearer and clearer and, and the sort of emergency gets greater and greater and governments have to make harder and harder decisions, how much of a role do you think it can play? Well, I think it can play a significant role in that these cases are more and more likely to win for the for the reasons you've outlined, namely that the science is more robust, the gap between where we need to be and where we're going is getting larger, and people are, are more and more afraid and outraged by political inaction on the problem. Um, so, and as I said, now with the precedent that the Dutch case has set, there is a very strong legal basis for arguing that governments have a human rights-based obligation to take sufficient action Can on climate Can that transfer change. from one jurisdiction to another? If the Dutch have concluded that, does that have relevance in other courts? Or not really. Well, it does insofar as a judge that's interpreting the same rights in another country will look to how those rights were interpre- interpreted in the Netherlands. I mean, it's not a directly applicable decision in another jurisdiction. But yes, yeah, certainly, because there are so few of these cases at the moment, we see already that courts are citing the way that other courts have dealt with climate change as a problem. So so there's that's one element of it. But the other thing is that both, I think, governments and particularly the industry is affected by the risk of litigation. I mean, I, I sort of fear this that there's a sort of relevance here to, is it page 46 of the Conservative Party manifesto, the famous page 46? Oh, I think you've got them all memorised. Uh, <laughs> um, 
there was the, this was a sort of big issue during the election. About, this is about the sort of politicization of the judges, so-called politicization of the judges here and activism of the judges. And, the, and this was in the context of the... Uh, uh, of the sort of Brexit decisions. Do you think there's a danger of a sort of chilling effect that the government wants to send a message to the courts back off, including well, quite, in this area? Possibly, but I mean, this is exactly the issue that confronted Churchill and others in 1945 when politicians said you just cannot trust governments completely and unfettedly. And there are some things that are so fundamental here that the court is always going to have to have a role because politicians and governments simply don't have a mandate to drive their population towards destruction and devastation. They don't have a mandate to pursue policies that, according to science, will leave our planet uninhabitable. That's such a basic proposition. It's very difficult to see how anything could happen that took that outside the jurisdiction of the courts. I think the other thing is that courts are extremely sensitive to that concern. So all of the cases that have challenged government policies for not being ambitious enough on climate change, in all of the decisions, the first thing that you know courts say is, we want to be clear that we are staying respecting the separation of powers. So I think that's a tension that's at the forefront of the mind of every judge that considers these questions. Um, so it's part of the reason why some of the jurisprudence in this area has already been so conservative. Our New Year's resolution is, is to try and not just talk about these ideas, but give people an idea of what they can do. I, th- I think just the process of talking to a lawyer can feel like an intimidating thing or something that is a big leap for people. Where, where do they get started? So I'm doing this because I'm a lawyer. And um, I don't think we want to be saying that climate litigation is a silver bullet. It's not the only thing. I think for me, the question is just for everybody to face up to this moment of crisis that we're all in and to ask themselves, you know, what they can bring to this. Maybe it's contributing to a crowdfund for some litigation. Maybe it's campaigning outside court, coming into the courtroom, showing you care about it. But maybe it's something completely different. And standing up and requiring your office to face up to to what's happening now, asking everybody, what are you doing now in this time of crisis? How are we going to come together around this? I would just like to add something for the lawyers who are listening to the podcast, um, which is just to say that um, I think at this point in time, uh, you know, a lot of legal practice, the sort of big firms um, in in cities like London, it's not it's no longer a kind of amoral enterprise. Um, and I think you know, in a country like the UK, where there's such a great culture of pro bono legal practice at the profession, you know, lawyers can also contribute to supporting litigation for the public good, um, as well as, you know, whatever it is that they do to, to make the big bucks. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. It's, it's a utopian future. I'm the supreme leader. Ed is a political prisoner after his remarks on last week's podcast. But if I, I was to make you, I don't mean what you want, Attorney General, uh, with specific regards to climate litigation, what is the first thing you would enact in your new role? So it's a difficult thing to enact, but I think the first thing I would do thinking about the Glasgow COP is say, I'm going to put my political credibility on the line here. We're not going to go through this same pantomime we've been going through for 25 years when the only thing that matters, global emissions keep going up. We're going to go in there. We're going to uh, seek all international solidarity around a climate emergency, a 10-year plan to get to net zero and planetary repair by 2030. And if I don't deliver on that, I'm going to resign and I'm going to join Extinction Rebellion. 
I think even, you know, the Jeffocracy being the kind of utopian autocracy that it is. Yes. I, I think even under those circumstances, you can't really get away with doing anything to help lawyers. Right, I think that's still right. quite a politically <laughs> risky <laughs> thing to bomb. do. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, really, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need climate litigation because governments would be doing what's necessary. This is a last resort exercise. And I think, frankly, we'd all rather be doing something else. All right, Tim, Tessa, thank you so much. Thanks thank a lot. you so much. Cheers. We're joined now by Pat Parento, who's Professor of Law and Senior Counsel in the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Clinic at Vermont Law School. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, we, we couldn't help but noticing you're in, you're in Bernie country. Yeah, indeed. Are you feeling the burn? Yeah, I knew Bernie since the time when he was mayor. I was the environmental commissioner here, so I got to know him quite well. Wow, go on, tell us. I mean, I know we're to talk about litigating against fossil fuel companies, but go on, tell us. Tell us your, tell us your Bernie stories. What you see from Bernie today is the same thing you would have seen 40 or 50 years ago. He hasn't changed a bit, neither on his policies, his values, his commitment uh, to social justice and environmental quality and all the rest. Uh, He is who he is. He is exactly what you see. He's a prickly character. Bernie's not the easiest guy to love, but boy, (laughs) does does he have a heart of gold. What's your what was your highlight when he was the mayor and you were the environment commissioner? Well, well, I tried to get him to clean up his uh, sewage treatment plant, and he said, "I'll clean it up when my people can afford it." So, <laughs> well, that was a, that's that's like an early sort of Green New Deal thing, isn't it? You exactly. Combined exactly. social justice and uh, environmental justice. Yeah. So he said, "You got to go with me to the state legislature and then down to the U.S. Congress and get us some money." And I said, "Okay, Bernie, let's go." <laughs> well, look, we, we're here to talk to you because you're an expert in the litigation against fossil fuel companies. Can you give us an overview of what's been, and I know there's a lot going on, but what's been happening in the U.S. of the, the recent cases, that have the, 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 the sort of biggest cases that have been taken in the U.S. courts? So these cases are being brought by cities like San Francisco, New York City, Baltimore, but also states like Rhode Island County, governments like Boulder County in Colorado. And they're all seeking compensation from what we call the carbon majors. These are the, the major oil companies, uh, not just U.S., but international, du- Royal Dutch Shell and BP and all the rest. Um, these are the companies that are responsible for something like two-thirds of the carbon being emitted every year. And, and the, all of these cases are seeking money so that these frontline communities, as we call them, can begin to adapt to the consequences that are already happening. Sea level rise, water supply interruption, droughts, wildfires, impacts on fisheries, um, the whole long list of horribles, of course, that we're seeing. And, you know, th- this is an old-fashioned tort offense. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not trying to get the government to regulate carbon or put a price on carbon or anything like that. It's, it's trying to get money uh, from the oil companies for the damage that they've done. And what's the sort of fundamental kind of legal base base that you're that's being relied upon? Here we heard about how in the Netherlands against government, it was the European Convention on Human Rights and the right to family life. It's obviously different against the fossil fuel companies. What's, what's the sort of fundamental base of it? It's basically a failure to warn, a, a danger creation, um, deceit, of course, is a big part of it. What did you know? And when did, when you, did know? you know it? Yeah. What did you do about it? And the, the record there, of course, that's been established pretty firmly is, is they knew a lot for a long time, way back into the 70s, um, that they hid that information. They lied about that information. So th- this is an old-fashioned tort remedy of saying, you companies, uh, by, by virtue of your conduct, 
developing, promoting, marketing, and lying about the dangers of your product have led to this situation, and it's time for you to pay up. Polluter pays. And and are there parallels with the cases taken against the tobacco industry in the 1990s in the United States? There are indeed. And the, the parallel is, is similar to um, suppressing the information, uh, a campaign of propaganda, uh, lying to the public, lying to regulators and politicians. Um, and there's documents, uh, internal documents from Exxon, from Dutch, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, that reveals what they knew and how they went about covering it up and denying it and saying the science was still uncertain when they knew it wasn't, that it was very certain. They were making business decisions based on what they knew climate change was going to do, accessing oil and gas in the Arctic, raising their platforms as sea levels rose, and so forth. So it's the same story with tobacco. doesn't cause cancer. We're not getting people addicted. It's good for your health. Uh, or at least it's not damaging to your health, uh, and so on. And, and so the parallels are, are pretty close in that regard. And, and, and what's the chances of success of any of these cases, do you think? That's a, a good question. <laughs> um, we don't know. I mean, climate change is actually changing the law, is the way I look at it. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism among my colleagues in the legal academy that these cases are going to ultimately succeed. And, of course, all cases like this big, ultimately go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we all know that's a very conservative court in, in terms of its majority right now. So we, it'll be a long time before we have a firm answer to that question. I think the cases that have the best chance are the California cases, because I think the evidence of the damage that's being done through sea level rise is the strongest. And the, the legal system in California courts um, is the most aggressive on some of these theories like public nuisance, negligence, failure to warn, and, and theories like that. But if one of these state cases breaks through, if one of them gets a verdict in, say, California, then, then we'll know that this is a real movement, not just a theoretical one. You just mentioned public nuisance. Can you explain to us what that principle is in U.S. law? Yeah, it, the simplest way to put it is it, it's uh, unreasonable interference with a right held in common by the public. So obviously, when you're talking about coastal areas and communities that are on the coast and that are at risk and being flooded and their coastlines are eroding, they're even talk about having to move the San Francisco airport because it's stuck out on a peninsula and very vulnerable to storms and everything that's happening. And so the, the, the idea is that carbon pollution is creating uh, these impacts forcing these communities to spend money on seawalls or moving people out of harm's way and so forth. And so these are real damages, and they're causally related to the carbon emissions from these companies. And the work of people like Richard Heady, who's a mathematician and who's crunched the numbers and who's actually been able to allocate to individual oil companies their share of the carbon that's in the atmosphere. So you take that number and that's the number that you assign to them as the responsibility for the damage that they're doing and the compensation that's owed to these municipalities. And what is driving this wave of climate litigation? Is it the public in these cities putting pressure on their elected representatives? It is, and it's also municipal leaders, um, you know, in these frontline communities that first responders, if you will, um, that, that are looking at their budgets and looking at their tax base, many of these these communities are, are, are relatively low income 
uh, particularly Imperial Beach uh, in California is an environmental justice community. They don't have the money to deal with these problems. They're not going to get it from the federal government. The real driver is money and, and the fact that these, uh, uh, these municipal officials don't have it. And they, they know they can't keep soaking their, their limited tax base uh, for what they're going to need. So they're going to the deep pockets. That's what it's about. The U.S. has obviously seen more climate cases than any other country in the world. Um, I am hoping that there's going to be some kind of action uh, here against some of the fossil fuel uh, industry. Um, but do, do you think the rise of climate litigation is going to continue as we as we kind of as the climate emergency worsens? Oh, yes. Um, and, and God forbid there's a second term of Trump. Um, there's already a blizzard of litigation over everything he's done. The Natural Resources Defense Council, one of our leading NGOs, has over 60 lawsuits alone against Trump. I mean, there's a new one every day, right? So even if he doesn't get a second term and if a progressive, a more progressive Democrat does get in and if the Senate flips. And so all of these ifs politically could change the litigation landscape. It could become more of a collaborative, cooperative effort in the United States to move forward. But even even with a more progressive government, the pace at which we have to be moving is so great and the scale uh, of decarbonization is so great that that I can I will I foresee a lot of litigation and a lot of it's going to be aimed at the fi- at trying to create the financial risk. I think litigation helps move that needle. It helps create a material financial risk that shareholders, big shareholders, are paying attention to and so forth. And I think isn't that the reason to be cheerful here, which is that, and we heard this in the earlier discussion we had. Whether the litigation succeeds or not, it does start to create a, a, a climate, forgive the pun, of, of sort of forcing these issues out into the open and maybe changing the behavior of the fossil fuel companies and, and, and maybe changing, oh, as agree. you say, the calculus of risk. I agree. Uh, um, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to be hopeful. The question is, can we move the massive capital out of fossil and into clean fast enough and at a scale that's necessary and, and I do think that that litigation combined with citizen action, uh, uh, you know, voting at the ballot box, all these things have to to be happening at once uh, all over the place. Uh, but, but there certainly is reason to believe that we're, we're reaching a kind of tipping point. There's tipping points in the climate system we're, we're scared to death of. But there's tipping points in the political system that we're looking for and hoping for. And the thing about tipping points in the political system is you don't know they're there until they're there and then everything changes and that's i do think there's reason to believe we can do that pat parento that's a great note to end on thanks so much for joining us oh you're very welcome i appreciate it what do you think jeff let's just dive in let's just dive we'll take a deep dive yeah deep dive <laughs> um I, I, it was i've never very been good very good at diving can you dive what do you think i can barely flop no i, ba- no, I can d- barely diving flop. Has just always eluded me it, it doesn't surprise me. Oh, yeah. You don't have an otter-like quality to you. You have a badger-like quality, famously, yeah, yeah, exactly. but not an otter-like quality. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed this aspect that victory isn't the only... Uh, I mean, it is the objective, yeah. but it's it's not the only good outcome, yeah. just how much these court cases can raise shape... The profile. Raise the profile, shape public opinion, yeah. and therefore um, influence government policy. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And, and also, presumably, it introduces an element of risk for government 
and for fossil fuel companies. And therefore, they might think, well, we've got to sort of move a bit in order to because we might lose this case. Um, so I think that's important. I, I think, in a sense, the courts are trying to play the role of future generations, at least in relation to government. That's the kind of way I think about it, because, you know, the whole thing about climate, as we've discussed before, is, you know, the, the actions we take now will have their big effects in the long term, you know, 2050, 2100. And the courts are sort of basically saying, well, look, you know, if you signed up to this target, as in two degrees in the Netherlands, you've got to, you know, you've got to live by it. Um, I've also been publicly encouraging Client Earth and others to try and take the fossil fuel companies to court here. I don't know whether it's going to happen or... The ne- and, and, and I suppose that's the other thing that comes out of the conversation is the European Convention on Human Rights can apply in both the Netherlands and the UK, but the courts can take a very different view of its implications, mm. which is kind of surprising. Yeah, it was it? surprising that, yeah. Um, and I think there is a thing, as I raised in the conversation, uh, I, my fear a little bit is that the government is firing a warning shot with all this sort of jiggery-pokery that they're talking about in relation to the courts and oh, have they overstepped the mark by sort of trying to ward them off here. But it was encouraging to hear that it's something you can do without being in government. And I also loved hearing from Pat about how city governments or, or state governments are now taking fossil companies to court. That's, that's got to be a good thing. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If you've got thoughts on this week's episode or ideas for future episodes, go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And last week, Jeff, when you were away uh, and um, being overthrown, uh, we um, I, I talked about the Vianuary phenomenon. Yes. Do, do, uh, do, 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 do. What does that mean? It says a phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Right over phenomenon. my head. Do, 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 do. Uh, uh, no? no? Nothing? You didn't stuff. watch the Muppet show? 
Mm. I was talking about my kids and getting them to eat vegan and all of the whole... Not eat vegans. Not eat vegans, you know, you know what I mean. Anyway, this one this is not about them, but this is a, it comes from Malcolm Cathcart, a subject Greg's bonus. Hi, both. Ed mentioned in the latest podcast about the Greg's £300 bonus for all employees. I heard something about that. be good to know how accurate it is. There was some feedback from a worker at Greg's who said he and most of his colleagues are on universal credit, so they will, they will get an extra £300 in January. Their benefits will drop by £300 next month when UC catches up. If this is true, what kind of incentive does it provide to workers? Now, I think Jeremy Corbyn raised it at Prime Minister's Questions. I don't think it's the full £300, but... It does reflect part of the problem of the benefit system, which is that when your income goes up, you get so much of it clawed back. Yeah. And, you know, people often talk about the sort of, you know, so-called penal tax rates we used to have for the richest in society. Uh, but that's what operates for so many people on lower incomes. Mm. Uh, and I think it just, in a way, it's, a, it's kind of highlighting, it's highlighting that phenomenon. And it seems particularly unfair when it's like a bonus that people are being paid, but it would be true of any other income. Uh, that people on universal credit uh, get. So it's a really important uh, point that Malcolm is making. This is another one on uh, on uh, veganism. It says, thanks for another heartening podcast. It feels like the generation below mine will be the ones to save the world. It's easier to find vegan and vegetarian foods kids will eat if you sort of ignore the label vegan stroke vegetarian and instead simply observe the universal law of child feeding which you acknowledged oh, in the podcast, oh, yes. of not mushing th- lots of things up together. Yeah, makes things bad. Uh, in combination with an in-head box-ticking exercise yeah. where you ask yourself if the kids have had something from each required food group in the Ooh, meal. interesting. I often serve my kids a meal we call bits. Bits is a bit like party tea, but as uh, as all of the ingredients are clearly visible, they will eat it. I don't think I ever had party tea. Is that Labour Party tea? <laughs> Maybe I had that. Political party tea. (laughs) He says, an example of bits might go like this. Pepper, carrot and cucumber sticks, steamed broccoli or a bowl of peas, sliced avocado, they can dip this in sesame seeds if they want, sticks of cheese, often with apricot in it, bread or toast fingers with vegan spread uh, stroke butter and marmite, bread is always a seeded wholemeal or a wholemeal pitta, vegan sausages, they love the lentil-based ones from Ikea, or the corn ones, Uh, fruit or sesame snaps for pudding, they get one each, not a whole pack. Within this rather pulled-together meal, we have iron, not just any old iron, yeah. uh, apricots and broccoli, B vitamins, marmite, seeds in the bread, sesame seeds, protein, cheese, avocado, sausages, broccoli or peas, carbohydrates and starch, it's really and sausages, good, and other vitamins, uh, minerals, uh, minerals provided in the vegetables. And that sticks. came from Cat Moore. That's right. And next week, we're going to be talking to vegan food writer Jack Monroe. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. As part of our Cheerful People series, I'm delighted to say that we are joined from California now by Annette Schenker Osorio, who's political communications expert and host of the Brave New Words podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, 
we're in need of cheering up even on this podcast and and we're hoping you're going to because your your podcast is about progressive campaigns from around the world including the 2018 together for yes campaign in the irish abortion referendum and jacinda arden's victory in the new zealand general election but maybe you can start by explaining the work you do on campaign communications and how you got into uh, doing it Yeah. So my background is in cognition and linguistics, which is just a fancy way of saying I explore and examine why certain messages and ideas and uh, collections of words persuade and mobilize people and why others don't. And so I do experiments around language and then I advise campaigns in various parts of the world on the words that work. And tell us about what that experience taught you and how you got into doing the podcast. What got me into the podcast is that I finally recognized it took me a while uh, that I was actually a being a hypocrite. And the way that I was being a hypocrite was my main message and really the main output we see from all of the research that we do around the world um, in terms of which messages work and which don't is that you need to say what you're for and not what you're against. That essentially what you fight, you feed. And the more that you talk about how big your opposition, how relentless, how tenacious, how overwhelming, how well-financed, the more we're essentially sending the signal to our listeners, this is a mission impossible. There's absolutely no hope of ever getting it done. We lose a lot. We're the losing team. You should join us. And it turns out that most people, that doesn't work. shockingly, yeah, they don't want to be on the losing team. It's weird. And your podcast, Brave New Words, which I've mentioned, has covered six progressive victories. Talk us through a couple of these and the lessons that we can draw from them, because I think it will it will help our listeners to understand your work. Let me talk a little bit about Australia and the four consecutive campaigns that we won there um, for people seeking asylum and toward closing the offshore detention camps that many of your listeners will know the government of Australia has shamefully um, inexcusably been operating for decades. And basically the big lesson there, and there are multiple, is empathy, not sympathy. What we see in the research, not just there, but in the States as well, is that the instinct to show the harms and horrors, you know, to show the image of the people behind bars, to show the image of the child face down drowning, that will get you instant attention. It will get you clicks. It will get you small dollar donations. But as many have remarked, Martin Luther King did not get famous for saying, I have a complaint. There has to actually be a dream. You have to engage people, not merely in the amelioration of harm, but in the creation of good. And so what they did there in Australia is they flipped to just sort of a full frontal assault of empathy instead of showing these are the terrible, horrible things that people have left. These are the terrible, horrible conditions they're in. They did a marital advice column in Women's Wear Daily. They did a what is your favorite music? They showed images of the children as children playing. And um, there are other efforts and tactics that we plan to use in the U.S., for example, creating a Spotify playlist of music from detention. Essentially, just forcing your public to to confront these people as fully three-dimensional human beings. And then second, and here is a lesson that you can really see, for example, in the Minnesota episode, which was about beating race baiting, the second sentence 
has to address the problem in active voice. So that's one of the major lessons. Instead of saying homes were lost or the wage gap has grown or poverty is rising or homelessness is increasing, if we don't establish at the outset that a problem is person-made, it becomes cognitively inconsistent to believe that it would it can be person fixed. And so we have to structure that second sentence where we name the problem in a way that provides the origin story that allows our listeners to understand, oh, this is where this comes from. So to be very parochial about this in Britain, it occurs to me because of experiences I had in the recent campaign, food bank use is rising uh, in Britain doesn't really tell you why it's happening, whereas universal credit is driving people to food banks. Universal credit is a benefit that this government has introduced and is causing terrible misery for lots of people. That's That gives you a sort of sense of, the vic- of, of what's causing the problem. And I would take it a step farther and say certain politicians have decided that our people will go hungry, or certain politicians have decided that some people in Britain will never have enough to eat. So I think all our listeners should listen to your podcast, but just give us a sense of if you had to sort of, and this is probably too simplistic, but are there, what are the sort of, are there two or three takeaways that do you think progressives get wrong that they should be, you know, just a way of us thinking about these issues or is it yeah. many more than, yeah, go on. I mean, there's many, yeah. but if I have to boil it down, it's number one, As I said, what you fight, you feed, say what you're for, not what you're against. You know, don't be a stop climate change. Don't be a not this. Don't be a we can't have that. So that's the first. The second is when you do name the problem, which you do need to do, um, you need to do that in terms that actually finger a culprit that are not passive voice because the other side is very much deciding who the culprit is. And then finally... And this is going to seem a bit out of left field. It's what we haven't talked about. The biggest challenge for the left that we see in messaging is our opposition is not the opposition. It's cynicism. It's not that people don't think our ideas are right. It's that they don't think our ideas are possible. Completely right. And so a lot of our challenge actually lies in the fact that we have to paint a portrait of what I like to call the beautiful tomorrow. That has never existed. Whereas what the right gets to do is the laziest thing on earth. Their beautiful tomorrow is constructed of nostalgia. It takes no imaginative effort. You just sort of think back. I don't know what the British equivalent is. I apologize. Yeah. Beautiful yesterday, which didn't really exist. But how do you convince people of a be- more beautiful tomorrow if people are cynical about the possibility of big change, which they definitely are? I think talking about change is a terrible idea. I think when you talk about change, you're selling the recipe. And what I'm arguing is that you need to sell the brownie, which is the outcome of the change. So partly talking about change does trigger those fears and that cynicism, talking about the kind of beautiful, wonderful uh, world that it can be is actually helpful because you need to build that imagination in people. And then the other thing is it has to feel like the leadership is different and credible and enticing and exciting. And, you know, where electoral campaigns differ concertedly from issue campaigns, where I spend most of my time because it's more satisfying, to be honest, is 
in a candidate campaign, the candidate is the product, and it's very, very difficult to detach the message from the messenger. Right. Uh, there's two things I, I will finish. The two things I feel about this conversation. One, we need more linguists in politics. Uh, and then secondly, I wish I'd met you in 2014 before I ran in the British general election of 2015. Uh, but there we go, because it's good, it's good that we've met now. Uh, Annette Schenker Osario, thanks so much for joining us. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. That went well, didn't it? It was like, yeah. we, like we've never been apart. Whiz by. Just clicked but yeah. right back in. We clicked. It is amazing to me that both you and I can click our fingers. They're we both remarkable. seem like the sort of men who wouldn't be only able with, to... Only with one oh, hand. I can't do it with my left hand. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're pathetic. Yeah. Um, oh, that was good. Yeah, left hand. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we, we should mention that tickets are selling fast for our show at King's Place in London on the 12th of March. For anybody who uh, has, has emailed or, or got in touch on social media saying, when are you going to be doing some more live shows elsewhere in the country? That's coming soon. Yeah. But just wanted to remind you that our, our first show of the year is going to be in London. It's at King's Place. We did one of those a couple of years, at that venue a yeah. couple of years ago. But tickets are genuinely selling fast. We'd love you to come along. It's going to be a great night. Uh, and again go to our website cheerfulpodcast.com it will give you details of how to get tickets and and if you go to the website as we mentioned at the beginning of the programme you'll find details of Cheerful Book Club I'd like to thank our guests Tessa Khan Tim Crossland Pat Parento and Annette Schenker Osario Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork wasn't designed by Emily Power. But by Henry Cole. Henry Cole. You don't seem to have so much fun saying his name. It was a little highlight in my week. Do you think we should retire Emily Power? Do you think it's time, 2020? Do you think us having the discussion about retiring her is rubbing in? I think we should definitely retire the discussion. Retire the discussion. Retire Emily Power or retire the discussion? Both. I think, you know, we've got a nice retirement package, is it? Carriage clock? There we go. We'll get Emily a carriage clock and we're sorted. Maybe a chocolate carriage clock. Is that a thing? I don't know, but you can eat the carriage clock. I've never looked at a carriage clock and thought, it's great, but I wish I could eat it. Carriage clock is a bit sort of 1970s, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. Why is it carriage? These these are good questions. Email us, uh, get in touch through the website. He's come back. He's still here. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.